Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, how are things going? We have we have three new Hall of Famers. Yeah, I have to say I'm, really, I'm not really a Hall of Fame kind of guy, even though I went there last summer and it was cool. Um, but, like, yeah, I like stuff that's going on now as opposed to stuff that went on 10 years ago. I get it. Um, it's everyone's dream to make the Hall of Fame, but... Yeah, I could take it or leave it, just being honest. Yeah, I am not quite as Hall of Fame obsessed as a lot of people are, and I find the whole discourse to get pretty tiring pretty quick. Yeah. But it is cool now that we're getting to the point where, you know, I am a handful of years younger than you, John. (laughs) Yes, you are. These are the first few classes here that are guys where I watched a good chunk of their careers, and watched Adrian Beltre beat up on our A's year after year after year and, and saw him in his kind of Hall of Fame peak and saw Joe Maurer winning batting titles. And so from that end of things, it's kind of cool. And I'm sure that'll wear off after a few years and I'll just get more used to it. But Yeah, then you become cool an to... old and cynical person like me. Oh, yes. Can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> um, but, but congrats to the three, to Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, and Adrian Beltre. And uh, – yeah, that, that's the one time we'll mention the Hall of Fame on this uh, show, and we'll talk about it again this time next year, I'm sure. Um, aside from that, we have a decent bit of news today. Um, nothing nothing too earth-shattering, but we do have a lot of bits and pieces here and there. We have, um, we have some rumors, we have a couple extensions, we have a couple larger signings, a whole bunch of the mid-market type guys. We're still looking at Cody Bellinger and Matt Chapman and Blake Snell are just kind of sitting there on the market and include Jordan Montgomery in there. Um, and we are, we sure are very close to February here. We're starting to count the days to pitchers and catchers reporting. So hoping to see some movement there soon. We'll see if any of those guys have to kind of hold out into spring training for a deal. Um, but, but yeah, at least for now, it seems like it's just kind of kind of quiet on that front. It's it's like a stalemate, right? It's like a staring contest with Boris in particular because he's still got, what, four guys that are big names that still haven't signed, and he typically tries to wait it out. But waiting it out sometimes has a has a backfire issue because teams move on or they're like, yeah, we don't want to spend that much. If, he's, if you're not going to drop your price, we're moving on. And so it is a staring contest and I think everyone's kind of bored with it. And so come on, make something happen already. Yeah. I think we're reaching the point. I saw a tweet the other day that, uh, that the Yankees checked in on Bellinger again. And it's like, there, there's some people talking about it. Like, all right, we, we've reached the point where Boris is trying to use the Yankees to get someone to over. Yeah. Like, and <laughs> did you see someone slipped in Matt Chapman's name with the Yankees as yeah. well for the same yeah. reason I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. I mean, you, you can look at it kind of on a case by case and see like, yeah, these are four of the best free agents that have kind of the most notable warts, right? Like when you go to sign an Aaron Nola, there's nothing really holding you up there. You, you kind of know what you're going to get. Yes. There's some risk involved with, you know, he's had a home run problem at times and it's going to be kind of his mid to late thirties on this deal, but you know what you're getting for the most part. He's very reliable. It's, it's very easy to kind of come to an agreement there. With Jordan Montgomery, you have kind of an up and down career, and you know, does he miss enough bats? Is he going to age well if he loses a tick? With a Blake Snell, it's like, oh God, does he know where the ball's going? He's so painful to watch pitch. <laughs> With yeah. Cody Bellinger, it's you know he was non-tendered a year ago, and the expected stats do not come anywhere close to what his production was in 2023. 
And then with Matt Chapman, there's there's some questions about both the glove and the bat. You know, he used to be seen as an elite defender, and the metrics haven't quite supported that the last two years. And if he's just kind of a good defender going forward and just kind of an average to slightly above average hitter, then what are you really paying for? So mm-hmm. there's questions with each guy individually, but it's still bizarre to have all of them still out there. Yeah. Yeah, I think all of that is playing out, and it's all true. Everybody's got warts, and no one wants to overpay, especially at this point. Combine that with the fact that there's still revenue uncertainty with a lot of teams, the Rangers with Montgomery, for example, in their in their uh, contract with TV. It's uh, they're not moving, and so like, where does Montgomery go? Uh, a lot of people think the Red Sox because his wife's uh, in, working at a hospital in Boston, maybe. Um, but like the Red Sox don't seem to want to spend. So like you're getting to this point where it's like a movable force against uh, whatever that expression is. <laughs> um, you know, like nobody's moving either way. So uh, I think Boris has to come down on his price because he doesn't have all of these guys, like you said, have warts. So he's got to at some point acknowledge reality and say the market is just not going to pay for that. What he wants. Yeah. And I mean, I could also see it being kind of a domino situation where, just one move really sets everything else into motion. We're going to we're gonna talk about Dylan Cease here in a second, but there's a lot of teams that are really only focused on the trade market for starting pitchers. You know, the Orioles come to mind, um, and the Reds maybe as well, where they might be interested in a deal there, but if the White Sox asking price is really high and they're looking there, and maybe the Red Sox are also looking there and a handful of other teams, and so if they want to see what happens there before they think about making a larger financial commitment, teams like the Red Sox, I mean, um, then we could see that kind of holding things up. We've heard reports about the Red Sox shopping around Kenley Jansen, so maybe if they find a taker for him, there's their Jordan Montgomery money. Um, there's there's a handful of different things. You know, the, the Cubs are kind of picking up steam a little bit, it feels like. They were pretty quiet for the first chunk of the offseason, and they've made a few moves kind of back-to-back-to-back to back to back that have actually meaningfully improved their roster. So you wonder if, you know, maybe they are finally getting it together and, and maybe the next shoe to drop there is Bellinger returning. I don't know. It, yeah. it, it, it seems like I, I could just as easily see, you know, everything goes boom, boom, boom over the next two weeks and everybody kind of falls into place or one or like two or more of these guys, spring training games are starting and they're sitting there unsigned. Like I could see that as well. You know, it's happened before well, Michael Conforto who's, situation a few years ago comes to mind he waited out the whole you know spring um but that's unusual and i think most guys want to know where they're playing they got to move they got to get ready all these things and so at a certain point somebody's going to break and i do think the prices are going to come down it's not like last year where you had preller overspending and a few other guys overspending this is not that market this is a very cautious very do your homework judicious kind of market and that means anybody who wants last year's numbers is going to have to come down. Yeah, and none of these guys is, you know, the Kendrys Morales or um, Stephen Drew types where back near the, the early days of the qualifying offer, these guys received the offer and declined it when maybe they shouldn't have. And as a result, they had to kind of stick it out until after the draft. So they no longer had that penalty attached to them. And right. their seasons when they came back were just miserable. Um, these guys aren't quite in that territory, like, like not even close. Um, plus since then the, the qualifying offer system has been kind of revised. So there's less incentive to do that. But I, I also just don't see any of these guys. I mean, maybe Chapman as, as a candidate to, to take kind of a pillow contract, prove it 
one or two year deal or like a three year deal with an opt out after year one kind of a thing. Like I can maybe see the argument for him of getting off the turf in Toronto and reestablishing himself as that elite defensive third baseman and getting the bat going along with it. And then he can actually line himself up for the longer term deal he wants. But if you're Cody Bellinger or Jordan Montgomery or Blake Snell, you just had the best platform year you could have really hoped for. So like, this is it. They, they, it, it's, it makes sense why they're holding out for the best deal they can get because this is kind of their last chance at one. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is they're they're not getting any younger. Baseball Prospectus had a really interesting article about a week or so ago on like length of contracts and how they shrink as you get into your 30s. This is not breaking news, obviously. We all know this, but, but it was striking to see how the slope kind of went down and down and down. The older you get, basically, the less money you get, the less years you get. And it's and again not news but it's a reminder that you can't ask for the moon and stars when you're 31 ish 32 right you're gonna have to take what you get yeah yeah absolutely and it's definitely continuing to trend in that direction and i think that's something that bellinger might have on his side i believe he's still only like 28 29 yeah he's the youngest Um, of those group of those guys yeah but he as we mentioned he certainly comes with his warts so it will be interesting to see who who takes the bait on a guy like him or a guy like Snell and what that contract looks like. Are there kind of um, contingencies built in for the team to help them avoid this worst case scenario of whoops, this guy has completely pumpkined and now I'm committed to him for $200 million or whatever. Um, It'll be interesting. I I wonder if Boris might have to get creative for at least one of these guys. I mean, you know, there's always opt outs and, you know, (laughs) deferrals. You can start to get creative. Yes. And you can start to make you know, just you can make the number look better than it actually is if you if you bake in some of those things. And so maybe from an ego's perspective, like, yeah, look, I got two hundred million dollars when really it wasn't, you know, so maybe there's some game plan going on there. Yeah, or or the sort of thing where it's like uh, I guess the Imanaga deal and, and, and there's been a couple others along those lines as well, where it's like, Okay, there's gonna be a, a more sizable like set of options on the back end of this deal, but after year two you have to decide if you're gonna exercise them or not. And so that way, you know, you can give it two years. And if Blake Snell is pitching like a number two starter still, then yeah, we'll guarantee him these $80 million over the last three years of his deal or whatever. But if he hasn't worked out like that, maybe you're guaranteeing a lesser amount or you're letting him hit the free agent market or, or something like that. Like one of those kind of creative, uh, it's it's almost like an like a conditional back half of the contract, yeah. I guess, yeah. right. that, that has to be decided at an earlier date. So you can't just uh, put it off till the end when they're clearly in their defi- decline phase and it's an easy decision to decline that option. Yeah. I was still struck by the fact that the Yankees are the only ones, if we believe the reports to be true, the only ones who have made them an offer. And that was for six years, 150. So, which is not, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit low, but it's not that low uh, based on our modeling. So, but if that's the only team that's even made a dent, that tells me that they're asking for too much. Sometimes they get stuck on a number, like, oh, we're going to get 200, and maybe they shouldn't. And so you got to come down in years or opt-outs or whatever creativity you want to get. But something's got to give there because that market is cold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we will keep an eye there in the coming weeks. We'll see if there's any traction by our next episode. Um, but for now, let's get into... Um, kind of the most recent news that we have for for today's episode this actually just broke um, right before we were recording that the Mariners are showing some interest in Dylan Cease Um, interesting (laughs) this comes from Bob Nightingale of USA Today so uh, 
You can take it with whatever grain of salt size you have appropriated to bomb Nightingale in your head. But it's interesting mainly because the Mariners have been talked about all season, as, all, all off season as a team who would potentially trade away a starting pitcher. And especially as they continued to make moves that subtracted from their offense to kind of make payroll space, it was like, okay, are they making space to sign a larger free agent hitter? Are they making space to sign a larger free agent pitcher? And then that gives them more flexibility to trade their young arms for an impact bat. Uh, but this latest report gives them the possibility of a package around Bryce Miller or Brian Wu, one of those young uh, right-handed pitchers in their rotation, to just upgrade that slot with the Dylan Cease instead of those two, uh, instead of one of those two, I should say. So it's certainly interesting. I, I certainly don't hate the idea. And I think I think you could sit down with the simulator and, and workshop a deal with Dylan Cease. And, you know, I'm not talking about Luis Robert or anything, but maybe there's room for a secondary, even even if it's just a bench bat, the Mariners need all the depth they can get at this point. Um, but but some sort of secondary piece joining him in this deal in exchange for either Miller or Wu and, and a couple lesser prospects, lesser names on that side. So I, I could see the justification here and I could see how this would improve the roster, improve the team, but it still just feels, and I, I think we've... we've um, We've discussed this in previous episodes as well. It feels like maybe playing too cute, you know, too too smart. And just if, if your team has a lot of pitching and needs offense, just, just go trade for offense. Like, it shouldn't be that hard. There's teams that are, like, de in desperate need of pitching, and especially some lower market teams that are in desperate need of cheap young pitching. You look at the Orioles, you look at maybe the Reds. Like those teams have some young infield prospects that, or young just offensive prospects in general that they would theoretically be willing to trade for a Wu or a Miller, and look at that, both teams benefit. So I, I see the, you know, the the argument here. I just don't buy it when it seems like there's a much easier path forward for the Mariners. I agree. So let's try to figure this out. So from the Mariners' point of view, why would they want Cease? Why would they want to give up Miller or Wu plus? whatever, for Cease. And the first thing that comes to mind is their timeline. They've got Castillo in his prime. They've got a few other guys in their prime. Julio is just entering his prime, for example. Um, and so they've got, and, you know, Kirby is taking a step up. Gilbert is still kind of is what he is. So, like, they want to, so the question is, do they want to win now that badly, where they would trade six years of a young pitcher for two years of a more accomplished pitcher in Cease? Now, I know Cease is debatably he's had some ups and downs but he is a more accomplished pitcher than those guys one of the reasons why he's more valuable than miller and Wu in our model anyway is because miller and Wu haven't really established themselves yet we know they've got stuff we know they've they've been they've been coached well because seattle seems to have a thing going on with pitching development um, but there's still risk that they could just turn into a pumpkin right and so they're not six years of control is not necessarily a six six years of certainty that they're going to be great pitchers. There's still a lot of uncertainty there. So what he's effectively saying here is, if he makes his trade, is I'm going to trade one of those guys who still has some uncertainty for reasonably good certainty with Cease for two years while we have guys in their window. And so that's where I can see it happening. And maybe, you know, it doesn't it doesn't um, 
change necessarily the complexion of the team too much because it, in effect what you do is you, you move Cease up to the number two slot and pumps everybody down. So whichever of Miller and Wu don't get traded, you still got a solid core. That's a really good pitching staff. So you've improved your odds of, ma- of basically making the playoffs and going further in the next two years. So the question is, does he want to do that now? Or does he want to kind of wait and can develop, wait and develop with Miller and Wu and whoever else? So, you know, I can see it from that point of view. Uh, it seems like it's a no-brainer from the White Sox point of view because they're training two years of a guy with expiring control to for six years of a young guy with potential. So, And whatever else they can get in the deal. So I think it's really interesting, though, if you look at it from DePoto's point of view. Like, what is his timeline? What is his strategy here? And if he's interested, it says to me, like, okay, he's going to... He's actually going to go for it now. And it's going to, you know, the, from a salary perspective, uh, Cease is making, what, $8 million next year? Figured $12 million-ish next year. So the, it's not going to cost him as much in salary terms. So we know we've got some budget concerns. So that's a factor as well. Yeah, I I get it. <laughs> but also, so I, I pulled up the their roster resource page. And, it you know, I knew it was bleak. But... The more you look at it, the worse it kind of gets. And they really have like four hitters that you feel good about. There's there's JP Crawford, who, you know, he's not gonna hit a bunch of home runs or anything, but he's a big on base guy. He's good to have at the top of that lineup. He has a really good glove at short. They really like him. He's locked up. No complaints there. Julio is Julio. He's great. They signed Mitch Garver. I think that was a really good signing by them. He's got a big bat. They can just let him sit at DH all season, and and he's gonna hit a few homers for him. And then Cal Raleigh is a really good catcher. No complaints there so far, but it really falls off. Ty France slugged 366 last year. That's really bad. Mitch Hanniger, he slugged 365 last year and was hurt all year, and he's not expected to be healthy all season this year because that's just not who Mitch Hanniger is. So that's pretty rough. Luke Rayleigh, great story last year, but really fell off in the second half. You don't really know what to expect from this guy at 29. I liked that move for them, but... You know, you can't be banking on on Luke Rayleigh to make your offense even competent. It's like, all right, there's there's some variability here, like some variance here. This is a spot we gamble on, but when the entire bottom half of your lineup is is those spots you gamble on, like that becomes a bit a bit more dicey. Uh, Luis Urias terrible last year. Josh Rojas really a utility guy. Like that's a rough bottom half of the lineup for. You know, even even if this team had the best pitching staff in baseball, which, you know, I, I think you could maybe make that argument. Castillo, Gilbert, Kirby's a really solid front three, and the bullpen's really good, and Miller and Wu are really talented, and especially if you're trading one of those guys from Dylan Cease, then yeah, maybe that is the best pitching staff in baseball, or at least the best rotation. But these just seem like such easy spots to upgrade. Like, I understand if... You want to give Ty France another shot. You traded for him. You like him. You think he's going to bounce back. I get that. I understand if, you know, you want to give Paniger a shot, you know, bringing him back to a ballpark he's had a lot of success in. And even if you're not penciling him in for a full season, even if it is like half a season, you think he can return to above average production. And, you know, maybe you just need to bake in more depth in the corner outfield. I get that. And I also get Luke Rayleigh. You know, that's a gamble that, that I think is a smart one to take. But they could really use just a solid infielder, maybe even two to bump at least one of Rojas and Urias to the bench. Because even if you really believe in both of those guys, like you got to build contingencies because you've got five real big question marks in the bottom half of your lineup. And 
what happens you know you know let's say two of the five click and work out well now you have a whole lot of work to do at the trade deadline and that's not even mentioning you know what if a starting pitcher gets hurt or what if justin topa takes a step back in the bullpen and that spot needs to be filled like you got to build more not just depth but but quality depth and and more dice rolls than just what they have right now is i guess what i'm getting at you're not wrong <laughs> that bottom half does not look pretty and you're right so the, that's probably the more pressing need so it does feel a little bit like why are you moving deck chairs <laughs> on the, in the rotation because you don't really have to because um, you're already kind of strong there, uh, unless they know something we don't, unless they have some concerns about Miller or Wu not quite turning into, you know, uh, top rotation starters. Maybe they're just stuck in. They're going to be guys that are stuck in the back end. I don't know. Then you have to dive into their stuff and how projectable that is over a longer period of time. I don't know. And then you've got adjustment. The league is always making adjustments, so pitchers may figure them out. Who knows? You're, that's all uncertainty, right? And that's why you're trading. If you do this move. If you're Jerry Depoto, you're trading uncertainty for certainty, you know, because Cease is already is who he is. He's already a good pitcher. So, um, and maybe you can make a difference on the edges. Maybe you can, and then you know, there's still some free agents out there. You can sign another bat for at this point, not a lot of money. Sign a Justin Turner or whoever, and 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 you know, maybe you can plug a hole that way. You know, you get one more bat that way, and maybe a little bit of a of an upgrade in the rotation. I'm squinting, I know, but it, you know, I can kind of see it. Yeah, and I think what you said there with uncertainty versus certainty, that kind of applies in terms of like in terms of trade value as well, right? Where Dylan Cease, we have a pretty good idea of what he's going to look like at the trade deadline. You know, we have a solid track record to model off of and you know, his salary kind of gives him um, gives him a ceiling to his value where even if he comes out looking like a Cy Young contender again, he's still going to be guaranteed this like 20-ish million dollars over the next two years. And so that's going to limit his value on that front. And then even if he comes out in the first half and, you know, stinks up the bed, he has an ERA over four, over five, he's still going to be Dylan Cease. And he's still going to have that track record to go off and that kind of helps inflate his value. So there's there's kind of a limited range here of, what his value could look like either at the deadline or next off season, should things go in a direction where the Mariners decide they want to flip him. However, with Miller and Wu, it's much higher variance. There's they're guys where they could go out there and if they just look like, you know, young studs for the first 12 starts of the year, then that could balloon because with how everybody is in so such high demand for young talented starting pitching, if either of these guys look like they're turning the page and they're going to be the next George Kirby or the next Logan Gilbert, then their trade value is going to skyrocket and they're going to become much more valuable either for the team to keep or for the team to flip for an even higher profile bat if they decide to do so. Obviously, the flip side of that is, you know, maybe they're in the bullpen in three months because they just couldn't get it going, couldn't get it through the lineup twice, whatever. But those variance bars on the two of them, like... Yeah, there's there's certainly some scenarios here where they could be kicking themselves if they made a deal like this. Yeah, I think that's what it boils down to certainty versus uncertainty. You're giving up some upside, but you're giving up some risk as well in exchange for somebody who's pretty much a known quantity. But again, that that just means you have a strong desire to win now in the next two years of control that you have seized for. So uh, it's it's going to be interesting either way. I also want to talk about Cease himself just briefly. Um 
I've posted a couple of Dylan Cease proposals um, to our Twitter, and it, it seems like there's a large contingent of, of people who might think that our value on him is too low. Um, he kind of gets bandied about as an ace, and I don't think that's necessarily accurate. I think you look at the numbers from the last three years, and he's very, very good. He's put up four and a half wins by fan graphs in 2021, 4.4 in 2022, 3.7 in 2023. That's really solid. He gets a lot of strikeouts, a few more walks than you'd like to see, but if it's coming with all the strikeouts and it's coming with 32, 33 starts a year, you're not going to complain too much. But I, I, I think some people might not necessarily be looking at, you know, at, at the full body of work here. And might be kind of fixated too much on he had a 220 ERA in 2022, where that wasn't supported by the peripherals. It had him peripherals had him as more of a like high twos, low to mid threes ERA kind of guy that year. And then he was kind of a mess in 2023. And again, the peripherals, you know, he had a 458 ERA, but his peripherals are more in the low fours, you know, mid to high threes area. But I think if you're giving up a huge trade package and that's what you get, you're a little disappointed, even though that does have value, obviously. I'm not I'm not in any way trying to insinuate that C's isn't valuable, but I think there's some folks who are really fixated on that 2022, on that shiny ERA there, and not necessarily considering, okay, there's two years of control. Okay, he's getting into his late 30s. Okay, it's going to be a $20 million like baseline guarantee for his two years of arbitration. Okay. He wasn't all that great in 2023, has a bit of a control problem and occasionally a bit of a home run problem. Like there's some points that go against him that I feel like don't get as much consideration as they should at times. He's a very good pitcher. There's a good reason that a lot of teams want to trade for him and are going to give up talented players to trade for him. But I don't know if I'd necessarily call him like a like a surefire number one starter, surefire ace. Like he's not at the Corbin Burns level yet. He's a tick below that. And a large portion of his value then comes from that second year of control, not just from, oh, we just traded for an ace. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear that, though, actually, because most of the comments I've seen on Twitter around Cease proposals were like, what, he's that high? You know, like, if anything, they think uh, we're too high, not too low. Um, but then again, <laughs> that's what makes a market, right? So I'm very comfortable with the number we have. I think it works out. I think the math works out. Ben Clemens did an article on Fangrass a week or so ago, pretty much coming to the same conclusion in terms of how he approached it pretty much the same sort of level of package so i i think the consensus is is really in everything what we've seen with rumors if you look at you know even just this latest bit of news with miller Wu leading a, a deal with a couple other projects it probably add up to about right so i think we're fine on the valuation yeah it's it's the old adage of if both sides are upset about a deal then it's probably a fair one right there you go <laughs> Well, cool. Let's move forward from that. Um, let's let's now do a, a quick follow-up from the last episode. We, we talked a bit about Diamond Sports, Bally Sports kind of kerfuffle, I guess, the, the bankruptcy and, and what's going to happen for all these teams. And shortly after that last episode, we did get an update there, as we kind of expected. Um, it, there's supposedly a deal between Diamond Sports Group and Amazon, a restructuring agreement. It'll it'll be some cash influx, yeah, break them from bankruptcy, a whole bunch of financial terms that I'm not the most familiar with here. Um, but the long and short of it is there's supposedly a deal that would supposedly help a lot of these teams that are kind of in limbo here. 
Um, there were some reports that it kind of blindsided MLB, that they weren't expecting this announcement of this deal, and, and they had previously, I think, rejected an Amazon deal, and, and so now that Amazon's getting back into the fold, maybe there's concerns there. Um, I think there's a couple teams that weren't included in this in this proposal quite yet and needed to be hashed out still. Um, I'm not going to pretend to know all the details here. I will find a much more thorough write-up of this and link it in the show notes of, of people who are actually experts in this field. But my takeaway from all of this was, you know, positive movement potentially and a little bit more certainty for some of these teams, but far from definitive yet. Um, and you could still see some of these teams operating under some of those concerns financially of we don't know what our budget's going to look like for the next few years. Yeah, and I think that's the bottom line. It's really a hard topic to follow for the average person because it gets really complicated. Like, which teams? Oh, just these ones, but not those ones. <laughs> like, well, what are those ones going to do? We don't know. So, like, the, and how much money is involved? We don't know. Like, it's, it's, it's very uh, strange and complicated. So, long story short, it's a hangover on the market. Right. And still continues to be a hangover market. Maybe it'll be less of a hangover market of the market for some, but that's also a contributing factor to kind of the slowness we've seen because owners don't like uncertainty either. Owners like to know how much money they can expect. And if they don't know, and if that's a big chunk of money, they're like, oh, hang on, don't pull any triggers because we don't know what we're getting. So that's still the case, I think. Yeah. And on, on the flip side, the players don't want to be negotiating with, you know, a lesser pool of bidders, right? If you're, a Blake Snell and you have an offer in hand from the Yankees, but you think that, you know, just pulling a team out of this, the Rangers have had some issues. They're not necessarily connected to Snell. They're more in the Montgomery pool. But if you think that a team like the Rangers might be willing to offer you more, if they can get this all resolved, then you might be more willing to, to hold out, say no to that, you know, perceived low ball offer from the Yankees and see how this shakes out. So I think it could definitely be, a strong factor in this kind of free agent, uh, top tier free agent freeze, I guess I would say. Yeah, and there was some little inference in Ken Rosenthal's latest article in his notes that, um, you know, while that's Montgomery basically has been waiting out the situation with Texas because he wants to resign in Texas, but as time goes on, they're starting to get a feeling that maybe that's not going to happen because um, they've also got, you know, a bunch of guys coming off of injury: Scherzer, Verlander, uh, Scherzer, sorry, Degrom. And Tyler Molly at some point, and and so like, you know, I think he was inferring that well, okay, they'll just get by for the first half, and then wait for reinforcements that way in the second half, and to whatever degree they come. Um, so like, they don't want to overspend necessarily on another arm like Montgomery if they've already if they know those big expensive guys are coming back. That was the implication. In which case, if you take Texas out of the market for Montgomery who's left is the question. And, you know, we keep hearing Boston, but they seem to want to cut budget. So like he's a man without a home right now, if you believe that, that implication. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to see how this shakes out. As I mentioned, uh, this is not, I don't follow the nitty gritty here. This is the type of story where I'll, I'll see the big headlines and wait until it kind of sells itself out. You but, and everybody else, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, all right, let's move on to some of the actual news here. Uh, let's start with a couple quick extensions that, you know, we don't necessarily have a whole lot to say about, but are worth a mention up front here. Um, just this morning, breaking is the Tigers signing Colt Keith, uh, their infield prospect, to a six-year extension. The guarantee on it is a little over $28.5 million uh, over his six years of, you know, normal team control, but it has three pretty lofty options 
uh, on the back end that would escalate it to 82 million over nine years. So, you know, Colt Keith, really solid prospect, not going to be in like anybody's top 10 in all of baseball or anything, but seems pretty comfortably top 25, top 30, like a really solid name. Uh, 2020 draftee has really kind of broken out in, in the higher minors in recent seasons. And with this deal, looks like he's going to be on the opening day roster for the Tigers. So good for them. We've mentioned the Tigers in previous episodes, how they've been in a bit of a limbo state where they have some exciting young talent at the big league level with the Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson and a couple other lesser names, but they haven't really been able to figure it all out. The pitching has been hurt and inconsistent and guys like Casey Mize haven't made the impact that they would expect them to. So the rebuild kind of stalled and it was, okay, do we go back and kind of re-rebuild or do we just kind of push through it, you know, sign some guys? And it seems like instead they're kind of playing the middle here. You know, they're not making any big free agent splashes or anything, but they're going to upgrade around the edges and kind of play to their variants, I guess, and say, hey, if we get a big season from Green and Torkelson and, and now we have Keith up on opening day and he has a breakout year and maybe a couple of these pitchers finally click and stay healthy for a season and, and are productive for us, then maybe we sneak in and we can go from there and build off of that foundation. That seems like the approach here. Um, and, and I don't mind that approach, given that they didn't really have a whole lot to trade away if they were going to kind of kind of reboot. Um, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have any real deep cutting analysis of this Keith <laughs> extension. It seems like maybe a bit cheap on the guarantee, um, but pretty sizable, you know, upside here if he does perform the way they expect him to. So yeah, no real complaints here for me on either side of this. Yeah, so keep in mind, you know, the president of baseball operations came from the Giants about a year and a half, two years ago. And um, <clears throat> and they kind of took a similar approach. Like, okay, well, let's in, let's at least um, try to work, you know, let's work around the edges, be smart about, you know, waiver wire pickups or whatever. And, and you know, try to put something representative while while we build the farm, build the farm. And if we, if we identify a guy who's like a long-term core piece – Sure, extend him. And so I like this for the Tigers. I think it's a really, obviously, a team-friendly deal. If he's only guaranteed $28 million over his six years, my gosh. Imagine if he becomes, like, an above-average player, even if not an all-star. That's a huge, he's got a lot of surplus value on that. Um, and then, if you know, if he does get good and they pick up the options then in the back end of it, you know, you're still, you've got a core player who's still probably in, over uh, underpaid in the long run. Now, I should say, we haven't modeled out the the numbers with this contract because, um, it, there's no major league data to work with yet. All we have is kind of the prospect side of things, which is, um, you know, based on prospect ratings, which is based on scouts evaluations. And so we don't have like, oh, he, he's going to do X war per year over, over time. We don't have that yet. We will start to get that once that player um, starts to accrue some service time at the major league level. Similar story with uh, Jackson Churio of the Brewers. Um, so, Internally, these teams have already kind of done that, and they think, okay, this is a two-war, three-war player, whatever, and we can kind of extrapolate over years. Obviously, there's risk there, which is why it's a cheap deal from the Tigers' point of view, because what if he busts? And then, okay, if he busts, you're at $20 million. You could probably swallow that. You know, Scott Kingery comes to mind. A few others come to mind who, you know, Evan White, who, um, who were given deals like this, who never really made an impact. So you run that risk, which is why the risk, uh, which is why the contract is on the low side. You can extrapolate the numbers all you want, but until you have actual major league data, you're you're still speculating. 
So that's why the number is low. Um, so it's a, but look, you know, hopefully it works out for the Tigers. Um, uh, I don't have too much other to say other than that. Um, it's interesting to me that there, um, a lot of experts are pecking, uh, pegging Colt Keith to be the future second baseman and already giving him the second base job. Um, where they have another prospect, Chase Jung, who I thought was going to be their future second baseman, and I thought Colt Keith would be the third baseman. What do I know? So, like, what does this mean with Chase Jung? Where does he go? Did he go to third, like his brother? I don't know. Um, they still got a hold in third, basically. They got Zach McKinstry filling that for now, who is, you know, not a core piece for the future. So they've got some holes to fill. And this is probably the longest-winded way of saying that, yes, okay, one step in a very long yellow brick road path you know but they'll i like what they're doing at least to get down that path yeah they at least have a direction here and that's more than we could have said for them a year ago at this time right and, and they did yeah. make a couple at least you know i'm not going to call the jack flaherty signing interesting i'm i'm pretty ambivalent toward jack flaherty as a whole but i like to kenta maeda signing for them this off season i think he's got some upside for them either as a rotation piece or as a trade piece. And they brought back Andrew Chafin. They brought in Shelby Miller, who was really good in relief last year. So there's some upside there as well. Plus they, yeah, Marcana. I like, we're going to talk more about that later. I have some feelings. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, their, their bullpen was kind of underrated last year in general. They had a couple breakout guys, Alex Lang, Jason Foley, Will Vest. They're really solid. Tyler Holton, even uh, as a lefty arm back there. So there's, there's, you know, that's, that's never a great sign when, it's one of the more exciting portions of your team is the bullpen that, that right. indicates that you have some sort of an issue in, in the lineup and rotation, but I'm a big Spencer Torkelson guy. I'm a big Riley green guy. Kerry Carpenter broke out. Like there's at least some, I, I can see a vision here. And like I said, that's not what I would have said a year ago at this time. The only thing that makes me sad is I took one of my sons to a couple of Tigers minor league games last summer. And we got, we kind of bonded with a couple of guys who saw uh, signed autographs and like, they haven't quite made it yet and now their stock has dropped like i was hoping for those guys and you know so it's a farm system thing like the guys you were sort of following and you hope to rise up sometimes don't work out um one of the ones that surprisingly uh did is justice bigby who i didn't think was going to be a prospect and now he's had a breakout year and he's shot up so there's a little bit of something going on in the farm i'm not saying it's great but there's ups and downs this is any farm i have no point other than to say i'm sad for the guys that, that whose stock has dropped Yep, that that is how it goes, though. That is how the farm churns. It is. Um, It's a soap opera. (laughs) Yes. All right. uh, One other minor extension to talk about here. It's not not necessarily an extension. Um, The Cardinals bought out Tommy Edmonds' remaining two years of arbitration. It's a two-year, $16.5 million deal. This is not going to move the needle much for us. Uh, We had his salary projected at 16.3 over those two years previously. So this is just the tiniest tick higher than that. It'll bring his surplus down just that little itty rounding error, 200,000. But yeah, this is, this is fairly typical um, just to to see, see the team and the player just agree. Let's not go through this whole process next year. Let's just buy you out at what you're expected to get a guy like Edmund. He's got a decent floor to him. He plays a lot of positions. He brings a lot on the field. He's got some speed. He's got some versatility. Um, you know, even if he were to take a bit of a step back offensively this year, he's still going to be a valuable enough player that it makes sense to roster him next year at that price. So a bit of a no-brainer for them. Um, and, and he's that perfect kind of quintessential Cardinals player. So nothing too surprising here. Just wanted to mention that, that if you do see uh, Edmund's value just oh so slightly tweak in in the coming days that's why okay all right let's talk about 
the let's talk about the big free agent deal of the last couple weeks. Josh Hader finally has a home. I think we talked about him last time about like, do you do you remember Josh Hader? He's he's a free agent. He's still out there. I, I forgot he was out there. Uh, but, a lot of people did, yeah. Yeah, but the Astros didn't. They heard us and thought, oh yeah, maybe we should sign him, and so they did. Uh, it's it's a five year, ninety five million dollar contract, no deferrals. Um, on the face of it, that is the second largest deal for a reliever. Uh, it's behind Edwin Diaz's $102 million contract, but Diaz has had referrals, or excuse me, deferrals. Um, so when you factor those in, Diaz's deal goes to closer of $93 million in present day value. Um, and that means Hader's deal technically beats that one out. Uh, we could argue about inflation and things like that. Um, but it seems like that might've been a goal for Hader and his camp um, with this deal. As far as the model goes, I projected him at 89 and a half million in field value for those five seasons. And so that's a little bit under the $95 million guarantee. And there's, there's some market factors at play there and some other odds and ends. Um, and another thing is, is just this sticking point of if he really wanted to beat that $93 million present day value for Edwin Diaz, if that was a goal for him in his camp, then, you know, the team is not going to, especially, you know, Jim Crane's Astros, they're not going to haggle over this last couple million. If they really did truly value him at 90 million and he says, well, I want 95, they're not going to let that extra million a year um, come between them and a deal here, especially considering the Astros kind of weakness in the bullpen. Um, they lost Hector Neris, Phil Maton, and Ryan Stanek to free agency. I believe Maton is still, avail still available if they want to bring him back. Mm -hmm. um, Kendall Graveman just recently underwent shoulder surgery that's going to take out his 2024 season. And Ryan Presley, who was their closer, he was kind of just okay in 2023, and he is getting a little older. And at some point, you think things might, might fall out from under him there. And so this wasn't you know a necessary move for them, but if they really want to kind of maintain their stranglehold on the AL West and remain as strong as they've been, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a good move for them from that front. You know, it's, it's always risky to invest in the bullpen and especially at the stage they're at right now where Bregman and Altuve are hitting free agency soon and they need to look into new deals for at least one of those two guys. And there's some other spots of kind of uncertainty on the roster as well. This isn't the Astros juggernaut from a few years ago. They're starting to, I don't want to say peter out, but they're starting to run into some some concerns about aging and financials and, and injuries and things like that. But um, this does make a lot of sense for where they are today. It makes them a much stronger team in 2024, 2025. And from that standpoint, yeah, why not? So... The so was it last year where they signed Rafael Montero to this big contract and it didn't did not go well. Yep. <laughs> I mean, like, and Jim Crane did that deal, and I got a feeling he was involved in this one as well. Like, he has a tendency to overspend on relievers, but at least this year it makes a little bit more sense given all the sort of departures that you mentioned. And if you look at their roster resource page and their bullpen, yes, that that back three is amazing. Hater Presley and Abreu. That's lights out seven eight nine if you're winning the game, but what about a normal game? And if what if you use those three the day before? We using Montero, Blanco, Bennett Souza. See, you got a real drop off there. And so, like, I, I got a feeling they got to bump bump up that sort of middle of that bullpen a little bit more because there's I'm not giving a whole lot of hope there for the days you don't use those big three names. 
And uh, so there's some work to do there, I think. Um, but to your larger point about the Astros, yes, I think they're they're getting to the point where it's the it's starting to fray a little bit. The roster, like how how long can they hold this together? Bregman and Altuve will be free agents after this year. Kyle Tucker only has two years left to go, and they have a terrible farm. Um, yeah, they did bring up Yanner Diaz. Yanner Jeremy Pena is still young, but these are not like proven guys who are superstars. These are sort of, you know, they're they're batting sixth and eighth in the lineup, and, you know, after that, there's not much either. So, like, what happens when Altuve and Bregman are gone? And then two years from now, Tucker, let's say they don't re-sign him. You got Jordan Alvarez and uh, a 40-year-old Jose Abreu. I don't know if he's still around that much, but maybe not. So you got nothing left. So, like, at a certain point, you just got to say, all right, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Maybe you sign Hayter now because you're still a powerful team. And, you know, we'll, you know, we'll worry about 2026 later, but it's going to be ugly, I think, in 2026. Uh, and even if they do resign Altuve and Bregman and let's say even Tucker, yeah, those guys aren't getting any younger. So there's, there's a real question to how long this thing can last. Yeah, and there was some buzz earlier this offseason about them potentially trading Framber Valdez as he gets more expensive in arbitration and... I don't want to read into that. It, it was kind of a one-off rumor and, and never really picked up steam. And it's certainly not something I would expect in the coming weeks here between now and, and spring training. But I, I feel like it's a little bit indicative into how they view the roster, right? The Astros of a few years ago, the juggernaut Astros, wouldn't consider something like that. They wouldn't need to because they have guys coming up at every position and even if they don't, they have guys they can develop at each position and, and make trades. And, and they're they're not too concerned about, oh, do I need to sacrifice this strength of my team to address this weakness? That that was never really their MO. But the fact that we're hearing even rumblings of that now of, okay, we might need to, to take away from a strength in the rotation to A, save a little money, and B, maybe upgrade the lineup or, or add a younger starter or update, upgrade the bullpen. So... That that's again. I don't want to read too heavily into it, but it was a bit of a surprise to me to see his name floated, and I wonder if it says something about, like I said, like how they view their roster right now. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, but even if they did, I'm not sure that would be enough. So first of all, I don't necessarily agree that there's a next man up kind of coming if you traded away from Valdez. You don't have Brett Strom as your pitching coach like he did before. He's he would play a large role in developing a lot of these guys. And so if you trade one of them, I'm not sure who you'd replace them with unless you, you know, open the pocketbook for Blake Snell or whoever. Um, but, you know, in a larger sense, the, this team reminds me of the, the 2011 Phillies or so, you know, that team with Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley and Ryan Howard and, you know, and they waited too long. The industry consensus was they and they kept, you know, over overpaying those guys as they were getting older and, and less effective. And boy, they really paid the price. It took them a long time to rebuild. Right. Um, and I got a funny feeling the same pattern is happening here with the Astros because I don't see them saying this is this is obviously not the Rays or one of those small market teams who's constantly returning their roster. This is like we're riding into the sunset with Altuve and Bregman, and then you know that's it. And when they're done, they're done. And this is it's going to be ugly afterwards. I really do think so. Yeah, and I'm I'm hesitant to say anything negative about Alex Bregman because every time I doubt him, he goes out and puts up a a four win season. Um, but you know, I, I trust Altuve. I think he's just really good. I think he's 
going to continue to be really good. I think he's a, a Hall of Famer and is a guy that, yeah, they should probably lock up. He's an Astro. He's been there since the very beginning, and he's just such a talented player. Bregman, I feel like, is a guy who, as soon as he loses a step, it could all come crashing down kind of quick. And, you know, maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's that's not the most accurate. You know, he does play to the ballpark really well, and if he does stay in Houston, then the ballpark's not changing. And, you know, maybe it looks even worse for him if he signs somewhere else and he can't take advantage of that kind of shorter left field in Houston that he's benefited from and really kind of tailored his swing to. Um, but I don't know. I, I just don't trust him into his 30s the way I would trust some other players. Even a Kyle Tucker, I would trust more yeah. into his, like, mid-30s than Bregman. And so, yeah, I wonder if, if they do go that route and they do lock up both of those guys and then maybe try for Tucker after that. You're right. I could see the money kind of stacking up, the performance kind of dipping, other areas in the roster suffering. And then, yeah, it's a similar story to a team like those Phillies that you mentioned. Yeah, and so it all circles back to you just gave Josh Hader five years, right? So what's the team look like three years from now, four years now? Do you really still need Josh Hader on the 2027 Astros? I mean, what are they going to look like is the real question. And I know this is probably the price of doing business with getting Josh Hader. He probably demanded five years. But nonetheless, it could be ugly when it comes to that. And I don't want to, you know, discount the Astros' chances in 2024 too heavily. They're still probably the favorite in the West, even though the Rangers just won the World Series. Um, there's some concerns with health for Texas. There's some concerns with, okay, what if this guy and that guy might take a step back from 2023? Um, on the flip side of it, though, they have Evan Carter and Wyatt Langford, you know, Carter is going to be on the opening day roster. Langford probably won't be too far behind him. And a lot of other interesting young talent in that farm, a lot of firepower for trades. Clearly they're willing to spend money even amidst some uncertainty financially. And so they're looking like the next juggernaut. And so if you're the Astros, this might be your last chance, you know, not, not to, to write them off too quickly, but 2024, 2025 might be the closing of this window. And so if you have to spend some money now to get a Josh Hader to really boost those chances in those seasons, and you know maybe your team suffers in 2026, 2027, 2028 because of it, maybe that's a trade-off you make to try and get that one last ring in before this core is really kind of riding off into the sunset. And that brings up to mind the previous discussion about the Mariners who were in the same division, right? So if you think the Astros are vulnerable, maybe, or this is their last stand. Um, like, maybe there's a little opportunity here for the Mariners to sneak up there. I don't know if they're going to win the NO, I'm mean, sure the AOS, or, or at least be a wild card. But, you know, they're, they're, you could you, you sort of position this as a three-team race, right? And so maybe they want to get stronger because they really feel like, well, they got Luis Castillo in their prime and they can go after the Astros and Rangers. Um, it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, and then we're going to talk to me about the angels in a little bit, but, um, but yeah, I think you could look at it as Jerry DePoto watching what the Astros moves are saying, okay, they're still going for it. Rangers. Okay. They're strong. Do I have a chance? If I do have a chance, then I can trade for CISO. If I don't have a chance, what am I doing? So, um, I think he sees something there that there's, you know, maybe there's a, there's a little hole there he can sneak into. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, let's pivot over to the other 
major signing. Um, there, as I mentioned, there were a handful of kind of mid-tier signings, and we'll, we'll kind of group them together in a minute here. But there was one other fairly notable, at least in, in the size of the guarantee here. And that's the Brewers signing Reese Hoskins to a two-year, $34 million guarantee. It's reported as a two-year deal, but you can either view it as a two-year deal with an opt-out, or you can do, view it as a one-year deal and an option for the second. Um, at the end of the day, it's a $34 million quote-unquote guarantee. Um, there's a, a $12 million salary in 2024, an $18 million salary in 2025, and then um, there's a buyout on that salary. There's also a mutual option for 2026 with a buyout. So not necessarily you know, not, not a very straightforward contract, which makes sense. Uh, Hoskins is coming off of a lost 2023 season. He tore his ACL in spring training and did not make it back onto the big league roster in 2023. So it's a bit of a pillow contract kind of scenario. And really he's like the quintessential brewer, right? The brewers always sign these hulking first base types, usually off the bargain bin and get them to swat 30 homers and then they go elsewhere. And that's kind of what Hoskins is, is shooting for here as you know an opportunity to really um to really reestablish his value and maybe get a lengthier free agent contract next offseason and if he doesn't he has kind of a fallback of that 18 million dollar option that he can opt into for 2025 and, and that's still a reasonable amount of money for a reese hoskins type um, as far as the model the model projected him at about 41.2 over these two years. So there's going to be some surplus on this deal. It's a bit lower than we might have expected. Um, it's always hard to gauge these injury cases, especially when it's just a complete lost season. And, you know, maybe it's not something that should factor into future injury risk. I don't think I'm too worried about Hoskins re-injuring that leg. It's, he's a hulking first baseman. He's not trying to run and make dives in the outfield and steal bases or anything like that. Right. It was really a fluky injury, so I'm not too concerned about that. But a year of a layoff can have an impact on a guy. It might take him some time to get going this upcoming season, so maybe that limited his market a little bit. Yeah, and I think most of the industry sees the upside, and I do think sees the, the injury risk as minimal because of that reason, right? There's a bit of fluke, a bit of a flukiness. I mean, yes, there's always some concern. Like, can you put as much weight on it when you're swinging? You know, but you know, those should be allayed once once the season gets going. You know, he'll shake off some rust a bit as well. He hasn't played in over a year. Um, but once he gets going, he should be fine. You know, he's still young enough to where he's got his you know all his faculties and everything. So, I I, I think it's a really good deal, um, and that's why we have a little bit of surplus on it because you know there's not. The injury risk is not a big factor here. He's just gonna just gonna ramp back up and, and do his thing. So I think it's a great fit for the Brewers too because they've been needing. They keep signing the rowdy Telezes and these guys are sort of big kid. Yeah, not much else, you know, you know, going for them other than power. And so he's got a little bit more athleticism. You know, I know he's a power guy primarily, but he's not just a power guy. I think he's got a little bit more in the tank. So I think this is kind of a new direction for them, like to get a really, you know, solid first baseman who's not just another rowdy to less. So I like it. So I have thoughts. <laughs> I, you okay. know, in a vacuum, I don't hate it. I, I think I agree with the model that there's a little bit of surplus here. There's some upside. Um, they needed a bat. They needed some thump. That's good for them. However, if we look at the, you know, 17-ish, let's call it 17 just because that's the AAV of the deal. The 17 million that they are paying Reese Hoskins here. 
Uh, Mark Canna, who they traded away, was uh, he's making 11 million this year, I'm pretty sure. And Adrian Hauser, who they also traded away, is making like five or six million. So it's about the same price. You know, they, they cut costs by flipping Hauser and Canna and use the savings to sign Hoskins. I think I like their roster a little bit better with Canna and, and Hauser. I, I think their rotation, you know, we, we talked about the Hauser trade. He's not necessarily a difference maker, but he's like a solid fifth starter, fourth, fifth starter. And right now the Brewers don't have one of those. Their rotation goes Burns, Peralta, Wade Miley, Colin Ray, and Joe Ross. And Joe Ross cannot be counted on for a full season's workload. Colin Ray probably can't either. And that's even before you get to the question of, are these guys going to be any good? They're, they're kind of lottery tickets. So they still only have three real starters that you feel even kind of okay about. And they traded Hauser away. So that's bizarre to me. Um, and I also, you know, maybe this is some, some Mark Canna bias speaking, but what's the the big gap between him and Hoskins. You know, Hoskins has more power, but otherwise they they get on base at a similar clip and they play similar defense. You know, Canna might even be a tick better defensively than Hoskins. Hoskins has kind of a brick for a glove sometimes. So I understand the appeal of Hoskins and I understand if, if they truly wanted more power, more home runs, then yeah, that, that's a sensible upgrade from Canna to Hoskins. But from a full roster building perspective, and, you know, maybe it's not fair to evaluate them right now because maybe they have more moves in the works and they're going to fill out the back of that rotation. And at the end of the day, it's going to be a stronger team than it was, you know, at the start of the offseason. Um, but on the face of it right now, with, with what they have penciled into that rotation, it, it sure would look a lot nicer with Adrian Hauser back there. That's, that's kind of my take. Okay. So... If you look at Reese Hoskins' Fangraphs page, what, the thing that strikes at me as interesting is if you just focus on the war column, 2.1, 2.4, 2.0, 2.0, 2.3. This guy is Mr. Consistent. Even in the 2020 shortened season, he was on a two-war pace. He's going to give you two war, maybe a little bit more, and he's still in his prime. He misses the age 30 season, but he's age 31 now. Um, projection systems like Steamer are giving him 1.8, 1.7, a little bit on the low end, probably because of the injury risk. If we agree that the injury risk is not a factor, then you've got a two-plus war guy at first base. And he's consistent with the bat. The WRC Plus is always in the 120s, 130s, so you got above average hitter, right? Okay, that's what you want in a corner, right? So you got a pretty much a guaranteed two-plus war guy. Mark Canna is 35, and aging curves apply, and so he's probably at this point in his career a one-war guy. Adrian Hauser, back in rotation. Steamer has him for 0 0.9. So you basically traded two war for two war if you round up the numbers. And so you can say, all right, well, yes, there's positional sort of considerations here. You lost a rotation arm. There's got to be another move coming where they replace that Hauser arm, that one war, which is not that hard to do. I don't know who that is off the top of my head, but I've got to figure there's another move coming, in which case you've, you know, that, that effect is you've, You've replaced two war with two war in Hoskins, and you got hopefully another guy coming that gives you the net gain of another war, one one to two war, hopefully. You know, maybe they sign a, a Lorenzen or a Clevenger or somebody, I don't know, um, that gives them that. And so you, you come out ahead a little bit. That's where I'm going with this. I know they need another arm. They've probably got a plan. 
I'm saying probably with wishful thinking, who knows, but I can't understand why they would have traded Hauser Rutherford. Yeah, and I could quibble over, you know, some of the projections here where yeah. Steamer has Canna at 1.3 and, and Hoskins at 1.8, but Zips has Canna at 2.1 and Hoskins at 1.4. And so take your pick there, you know. I, I, I think if you surveyed all of the executives across baseball, they pretty unanimously prefer to have Hoskins in 2024. You know, they, they would expect Hoskins to outproduce Canna in 2024. Um, it's a question of how big that gap is and whether that's offset by, by losing Hauser in the process. And, um, and as you mentioned, it kind of, it kind of depends on what they do with the back end of that rotation. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor the point too much, but I will say that I'm going to keep a very close eye on both of these two guys this season yeah. and, and how their production compares. And again, I will, uh, I will, Check my pro Mark Canna bias at the door. He's one of my favorite players. He's just a really fun personality, um, and and exactly the type of player I like with with how he gets on base and, and all the hit by pitches and bat flips. And he's just a fun guy. But and, and all the restaurant recommendations. He's a great exactly, foodie. Exactly. Yeah. And and Reese Hoskins also a fun guy. That was a his you know rookie season surge with all the home runs was awesome. Um. But yeah, we'll be watching those two closely. The The other takeaway I had from this deal is it pretty much locks in Corbin Burns for at least the first half of the season. You don't make this signing and then and then two weeks later trade Corbin yeah. Burns, right? Yeah. So there were some rumors throughout the offseason, and, and a lot of people were kind of splashing cold water on them, but this one really seals the deal for me. Um, I think if it weren't for the Woodruff injury, if you were going into this offseason with Woodruff, Burns, and Peralta, and then they signed Hoskins, I would still say that there's some room to trade one of those three guys, and and they could still squint and look at themselves as contenders who might have improved their chances down the road as well. Uh, but at this point, we, we just talked about how thin their rotation looks right now. They're not going to chop off the top of that by trading either Burns or Peralta. So it looks like this is what they're running into the season with. If things don't go well, you know, heck, you can, you can flip Burns, you can flip Wade Miley, you can... Adamus. Flip Hoskins if you want. You can flip Adamas. Yeah, there's there's options here if things don't go to plan. Uh, but it seems like this is, you know, more or less, you know, potentially a back end arm here or there, potentially a depth bat here or there, a bullpen arm, whatever. Uh, but for the most part, this is the core of the team that they're going to go into the season with. Yeah, and this may be it, right? Because this is Burns and Adamas, or this is their walk years, right? So, and it doesn't look like they're resigning them anytime soon. So, or extending them. So, yeah. This is the Alamo for the Brewers. <laughs> Go but, for it. But also, as we've discussed, their their timeline isn't isn't too unfavorable to them. They have a lot of young talent that's just now kind of reaching the big leagues, and so I I almost wonder if it could be a quicker turnaround for them. Um, they're going to have some work to do in the rotation, but they have a lot of young bats. You know, the Garrett Mitchells, Jackson Chorios, Bryce Terangs, uh, Sal Frelicks. Joey Weimer, yeah. uh, and, and there's a handful more on the farm that are still trying to break in. Jefferson Caro, and uh, uh, there's certainly more names on this list somewhere. On, on the pitching side, there's a few guys, Aaron Ashby, whatever they make of him, Robert Gasser, and Jacob Mizurowski. So there's something there. I, I, I do think, you know, once you subtract Adamus and Corbin Birds from this team, it obviously takes a significant step back, but... I don't expect, you know, a five-year rebuild to get the Brewers back to a good spot after 2024. Like, especially if they do end up trading Adamus or Burns at the deadline and, and kind of restocking ahead of time, then 
honestly, they, they might be back into contention 2025, 2026. Well, and, you know, it's the NL Central, so who knows? Um, but look, Pittsburgh's on the rise. The Cardinals know they have a problem they've, they're trying to fix, and so they may be making some noise. The Cubs are looking stronger and stronger every year. So it could be really competitive. Who am I forgetting? The Reds, the Reds, we're going to talk about them in a minute, uh, are really strong. So, like, it's going to get a lot more competitive. And so I can see them taking a step back after this year, maybe getting what they can. If they're not in it this year for Adamas and Burns and, and retooling a little bit. But, yeah, it, it doesn't look like a big fire sale rebuild. It looks like a downturn for one or two years, and they've got enough guys in the farm and on the roster that I think they could kind of replay it a little bit and be back. And yeah, I could see them being back after this in 26 ish. So you're right. Yeah. Um, let's move forward to kind of this mid tier uh, of free agents that we can kind of start grouping some of these guys together. First, I want to spend just a minute on Yariel Rodriguez for the blue Jays. Not so much on him specifically, uh, because as we've mentioned in the past um, with international free agents, we, don't really have any data available for them. You know, we can't model whether this four-year, $32 million guarantee for Rodriguez was a good deal or not because we don't really have solid prospect rankings for him, nor do we have solid, like, performance to, to baseline a model off of. So we don't have an estimate there. Um, but the interesting thing here with Rodriguez is he didn't pitch during the regular season last year, and so he's going to have to build himself back up. And... He's, he, he's not expected to be, you know, opening day, he's in the rotation, good to go. You know, it might take him some time in the minors. He might spend some time in the bullpen. You know, there were already some concerns of whether he's a reliever or a starter. But it is an interesting arm to add to the mix in terms of the Blue Jays have a fairly solid, fairly set rotation. And this kind of makes people look at Alec Manoa again. His name came up in some of the Juan Soto trade discussions of, is this a guy they could flip? And after Soto went elsewhere, he went to New York, it seemed like, okay, Manoa's probably going to stay put. You know, there's enough upside here that it makes sense to give him another go and see if he has it back and instead of selling at his absolute lowest here. Um, but this maybe puts him a little bit on the hot seat. I don't, I don't think they're going to flip him this offseason necessarily, but... If they have a guy waiting in the wings who eventually is going to be ready to step into a rotation spot, or at least that's the plan with this kind of commitment that they're making, um, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if I wonder if Rodriguez is at least in part a contingency plan for Alec Manoa. I guess that's what I'm getting at here. I think it's an interesting point. I think uh, a lot of people are thinking that we don't really know what we've got in this guy. Is can he see a starter? Is he a reliever? I think they're going to wait and see what they get. And and meanwhile, is Alec Manoa coming into spring training in shape? Is he in the best shape of his life? Well, I don't know. He knows he had some work to do. And, you know, I think it's sometimes people sort of jump to conclusions like, oh, well, he's terrible now. He's and just write him off without really considering the human point of view. It's like, okay, well, he knows he had a terrible year and he knows he has to work hard to get back to where he was. And so you got to, you know, let's see what happens. Let's see what, what that looks like. So maybe there's a fire under Manoa now and it, to, to get back to that, that previous self. Um, but this also helps light that fire because the Blue Jays are saying, look, we can't count on you. We've got to move on to, we've got to at least cover our tracks and say, okay, we've got, to got another guy who's going to compete for that job. So it's up to you to compete for it. If you want it, take it. Put the work in and take it. So I think it's it's an interesting sort of dynamic there. 
between these two guys for that fifth spot. And who knows if Manaya really gets back into it, he could rise up the rise up the rotation rank again like he used to be. So I think it does. The way I look at it is, yeah, it lights a fire for Manoa. And I don't think they want to trade him because I want to. See, I think they want to see what happens with him in response. And, but I think in a larger sense, the Blue Jays are really an interesting team because they also are in their window. They've only got Vlad and Bo for another two years. And then what? There's another sort of consideration, just like we were talking about some other teams. So I don't think they have the time to just sit around and wait for Manoa to get good. I think they've got to put the pressure on now, and I think that's what this is. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, let's start running through some of these relievers here. Um, it's, I'm going to just kind of list them all off for now and their contracts. I don't. We can stop and discuss any specifics if we want to, but I think we have some kind of larger relief market thoughts on a whole. So let me, let me list these off first. Uh, the Angels signed Robert Stevenson to a three-year $33 million deal. The Pirates signed Aroldis Chapman to a one-year $10.5 million deal. Cubs signed Hector Neris to a one-year $9 million contract with a $9 million um, vesting option if he makes 60 appearances, which seems pretty attainable. So um, can kind of look at it as a one-year 18 or excuse me, two-year $18 million deal, and there's also some incentives mixed in there. Uh, Angel signed Matt Moore to a one-year $9 million deal. Rangers signed David Robertson, one-year $11.5 million, but with some deferrals, so it comes out closer to like nine or $10 million, uh, guaranteed in present-day value. Mets signed Adam Ottavino to a one-year $4.5 million deal, which is a little bit funny because Ottavino himself declined a $6.75 million player option at the beginning of the offseason, so lost himself a little bit of money here. But uh, Yeah, he said um, he said that it was because he wasn't certain what the Mets' direction was, and as a 38-year-old, he wanted to be on a playoff team going forward, um, and, and he wasn't sure if the Mets were going to continue to sell, but I guess whatever they did this offseason made him content enough to come back. So so good for, good for him, good for them. Um, and then last one here. Uh, the White Sox signed John Brebbia to a $5.5 million guarantee. Um, that's uh, $4 million in 2024 and a $1.5 million buyout of an option for 2025. Um, can also throw Austin Voth into this mix if you really care, but I don't have him pulled up right now. So that's kind of this, this you know, mid-upper to mid-lower range of the relief market here. Robert Stevenson was one of the more attractive arms um, and, and there's some like name value here between Aroldis Chapman and David Robertson. Um, so a, a solid relief run. What is your first takeaway to this list? Are there any players you want to get into specifically, or do you want to talk about kind of the market as a whole? So for the market as a whole, I think what happened was Hater moved and that created a domino effect and they all started moving. And so teams have boards, it's like a draft board, right? Okay. Haters at the top. And then you got, you know, a few other guys. Um, and you're if you're looking for an impact arm, you're just kind of going down the going down the list, right? And Stevenson and Moore and Robertson and you know Norris and you know that's what happened. Um, what I do think is happening is there's a supply and demand issue where there's not if you look at that board and you want an impact reliever, there's not a lot of options. Um, now the flip side to this is there are teams who believe you can just develop closers. Billy Bean famously used to do this. He'd develop and flip and develop and flip. The Seattle Mariners are doing that. You saw them do that with Seawald, and now they've got Topa and then a few other guys. So, like, there's teams that take the opposite approach. It's like, yeah, we can always develop a closer. So, you know, 
in a way, what our model is saying is, yes, we, it's, a, it's a big, there's a lot of variance with relievers. We're a little bit low on these guys as a whole because, generally speaking, the counter to overpaying for reliever is you can just develop it on your own. So why would you pay, you know, overpay for David Robertson, who's going to be 39 this year? The other thing to consider is these guys always have a drop-off point. You know, Juris Familiar and Brad Hand, the Phillies paid for these guys and they got nothing out of them. And there's always a point where the, they just fall off. And it typically happens in their late 30s. So the aging curve plays a role here, particularly with Robertson and Chapman and Nerys. At some point, these guys are going to turn into pumpkins, right? You know, Fer- Fernando Rodney pitched into his 40s. I know you love him. <laughs> but Fernando! Derek, but who else pitched into their 40s? I can't think of one. Um so, you know, these always there's always a drop-off point, so you're taking a risk. Now, to counter that risk, these are all, for, for the most part, one-year deals, right? Okay, we'll spend $12 million on, it was a $12 million, uh, $12.5 on, on um, sorry, <clears throat> David Robertson, uh, $11 million on David Robertson. Yeah, it's more than he got last year from Steve frickin' Cohen. And so, yes, he had a pretty good year, but he's also going to be 39. So you're gambling that... 39-year-old David Robertson is somehow still going to hold up um, and not fall off the fall off the map just like all the other guys did before him. So at a certain point, you know, the Grim Reapers can grow in the man. That's not the right analogy, but age is undetermined, right? Father time is going to creep up and say you're done. So, like, teams are betting against father time here for a lot of these guys, and they're overpaying a little bit. So what our model is saying is, yes, father time is coming. We don't know when, but each year the probability of it coming gets get higher and higher, which is why we're low on these guys, but I think justifiably so, because you're basically taking a risk. The downside of that is you can always say, well, it's a one-year contract. There's no such thing as a bad one-year contract, right? Exactly, and I was just about to say the same thing. Um, yeah. First of all, I'd like to formally and publicly thank you for uh, giving me a reason to link to the story on Fernando Rodney's comeback attempt. <laughs> so that will be in the show notes. I uh, was Sam you're Blum welcome. of The Athletic. Uh, He's coming back, folks. Uh, get ready for the for the arrow. Oh. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, to, to your point about the one-year deal, though, I think that can be kind of the justification here, or at least part of it, that you know, even the Rangers, given their kind of... So the Rangers are in a unique spot between the TV deal concerns as well as the influx of cash that they have from the World Series. And so they're honest... They're, almost like perfectly situated to make this David Robertson signing, right? Where they have the bullpen need. And even if it is an overpay, if it's a, a guy they like and B it's just what he's asking and he's not going to budge, like why mess around and lose him over a few million dollars and have to downgrade to Joe blow off, off the minor league free agent pool or whatever, when spend the money and it's a one year deal and you have cash right now, like, maybe it's uncertain in future years, but you at least know that you have some cash in pocket right now. None of these contracts, uh, I'll I'll get to one potential exception, but none of these contracts really preclude these teams from doing anything else. It's not, oh crap, I just signed, you know, Matt Moore or Adam Adovino, and now I can't afford Jordan Montgomery. Like that's not a thing that's happening for any of these teams. So from that standpoint, it's just, yeah, give them the money, whatever. The one real question mark on here is Robert Stevenson, where three-year, $33 million deal for him. And if I pull him up in the model, we have him projected at 18.6 in field value over those three years. So right off the rip here, we have him 14.4 million underwater. 
And and, I, and, it, and that's because he was bad <laughs> for many, many right. years, right? So, and yes, we know he developed a good pitch in the second half, which is a very small sample size. We're basically spending a lot of money on one small sample size. And relievers are all about small sample sizes. So I know, which some, makes some high variance. I know. <laughs> yeah, and it makes it tough to model because you don't know how to separate, you know, the, the signal from the noise where right. a team with you know far more far more firepower in the analytics department than the two of us have with with the publicly data uh, the two of us the, the two additional analysts the publicly available data all all of what we have available to us is dwarfed in comparison to what the angels have available to them as they make this decision so with that caveat aside um you know even even kind of considering that standpoint and that yes if you're truly valuing him off of this change he made with the Rays and he's just a significantly better pitcher now and this he has a higher baseline I think there's still room for you to perceive this as an overpay um you know the Angels haven't been strangers to doing that they paid a lot of money for Rysel Iglesias a few years ago um they might be in a position given you know some of their own stadium concerns and given the quality of the team after losing otani like they might also just be in this situation where they might have to overpay for guys a little bit i don't, I don't want to read too much into that but i i wouldn't be surprised if that played a little bit of a factor here yeah but i think at the end of the day you know there's as you mentioned there's always going to be variance in the relief market and there's going to be some we hit and some that look like complete misses i think you're always going to be able to find some reason to explain the complete miss you know we, we just talked about david robertson and and kind of what made that a unique circumstance both on the player side and the team side and, and you can always kind of find that with these deals um so i i don't want to in any way insinuate that we're not going to continue pushing and trying to improve the relief model but I also don't think we're ever going to be truly beating ourselves up because of a miss in the relief market, because there's just, as we've said a hundred times now, so much more variance involved. So much more. Juris Familia and Brad Hand come and go and come and go. And we're not going to like totally bias like, hey, they're going to get way overpaid because then they're going to fall apart and turn into a pumpkin. It's right. A if we, if, yeah. If we modeled it to the Rafael Montero deal last year, then then we would have been way, way under on Hector Neris, right? So yeah, we, exactly. we can't play to the extremes exactly so so we'll we can take okay we're going to be a little under on some of these sometimes a little bit more under in some of these with small sample size we know teams have their own motivations we know sometimes they can model it out based on like a, wow yeah stevenson developed that cutter and now he's all he's good to go so maybe so and maybe that over time we'll say yeah he's going to continue to use it more he sort of builds up a new resume if you will that is different from his old resume the more that value will start to come well model's a little slow to pick up on that because we we don't over over index on small sample sizes and nor do i think we should the market sometimes will because they're trying they're reaching a little bit and the angels are reaching i agree a little bit to kind of get this guy so they're really banking on like the 90th percentile outcome here based on a small sample size and it is what it is yeah certainly all right, let's talk a couple of starting pitcher signings. Um, first, just a brief mention here, the A's are signing Alex Wood to a one-year deal. Um, contract guarantee is not yet known. I don't have a whole lot to say there other than poor guy. Um, hope he enjoys playing for a contender in the last few months of the season. So. Well, there you go. It, you know, the 
the cavernous Coliseum was always good for pitchers, right? And so he'll build, it all goes well, he'll build up some stats. And, and he'll be yeah. a starter, I'm sure, and get plenty of opportunities there. And maybe he was only getting kind of swingman roles with other teams. Who's so in it, his way? J.P. Sears, Paul Blackbird, come on. Hey, hey don't say anything mean <laughs> about J.P. Sears. That's my guy. I know. I, uh, J.P. Sears and Fernando Rodney. I'm, I'm a man of eclectic tastes. Um, but the more interesting starting pitcher signing here is James Paxton to the Dodgers. He gets a one-year, $11 million guarantee, uh, but it's kind of an asterisk on that. There's an extra million dollars if he's on the opening day active roster, um, or 500 k if he misses the first like week or two of the season. So uh, depending on what his health looks like right now, which I'm not 100% sure of at this very second, it's either an 11 or $12 million deal. Um, but pretty, pretty much right in line with what the model expected for him. Uh, we projected him at 11.7 in 2024, and so it's either 11 or 12, so right around that mix. Um, no concerns really there. So from one standpoint, it's kind of, kind of you know, richer get rich, ri- the rich get richer. The Dodgers have been building their juggernaut over there, and he's just another piece of it. The other standpoint is they had some concerns in the rotation, um, particularly in the back end and particularly with health. You have... Walker Bueller coming back from Tommy John. You don't know what to expect from him, but clearly not a full season's workload. And then a couple rookies, you know, Bobby Miller, um, Gavin Stone, and I'm scrolling to find the other names, Michael Grove and Emmett Sheehan, where these are good depth guys, but with how all in the Dodgers are going, they don't necessarily want to be penciling multiple of those arms into their starting rotation on opening day. And that's not even to get to the Tyler Glass now of it all. He's not a guy you can count on for 200 innings. Uh, the Clayton Kershaw question of whether he comes back and, and how much he pitches if he does. And so you know what you're getting with James Paxton. You know you're not getting a full season. You know you can really only bank in 15, 20 starts if that. But you know they're going to be pretty solid, and you're not going to have to worry about him too much when he does pick up the ball. So it makes a lot of sense from that standpoint. Um I have one other point on this I want to make, but I'll, I'll go ahead and pass it to you and see if you have anything else to add. I mean, the, the Dodgers love them some old broken guys, right? You know, they Shelby Miller and Blake Trinan and Jimmy Kelly. You know, like they keep signing these guys that are sort of old and broken, hoping for like a little glimpse of a turnaround. And, you know, maybe there's something in their, in their system where they're good at sort of helping these guys. Some of them don't work out, some do. Um, but it's just yet another example of that. Um, so I like it for the Dodgers, um, but I do think it sends a signal to the guys that you just mentioned. I mean, we talked about Seattle a, a little bit ago, but the Dodgers have like a whole bunch of guys like Miller and Wu in Seattle that are maybe just blocked out right now. You mentioned, you know, Sheehan and Grove and, and you know, Stone and Frasso and Knack and, her, and like... Wh- what do you, I mean, I know they're considered depth, but they've all got upside, right? They're all youngish. They've all been on prospect lists for the most part. So, like, why aren't you giving those guys innings? Is it because you're all in? I suspect so. But it's also sending a signal like, we don't trust those guys as much. And so I wonder what's going to I mean, there's a lot to trade from there if they wanted to make some deals. But then again, why not keep them for depth? 
So I don't know I, if I'm Michael Grove, I'm like, why? What about me? <laughs> you know, I, I thought I was getting my shot, you know, or who, Gavin Stone or whoever. So I do. I don't necessarily like it from that standpoint, other than the fact that well, you can say, well, we know Paxton's giving us 15 starts. You can take the other 15 or whichever one of you guys emerges from that pool. We'll take the other 15 or so, or maybe we'll divvy them up. But still, it's a little bit of a blocker. I mean, I think the goal here is pretty clear. They need, they're going to get to the postseason. And when they get there, they want Yamamoto healthy. They want Glass now healthy. They want Bueller. Mm -hmm. They want Bobby Miller. And if they bring Kershaw back, they want him. Obviously, they're not, they can't guarantee all five of those guys. Um, but if they have three of the five of them healthy and ready in October at full strength, then they've, they've accomplished their goal. And so I think the rest of this is just means to an end there. If they specifically went with the young guys, and they didn't work out or they got hurt or worked out in the bullpen or, or something like that, then you can just see the depth getting thin quickly. I do agree that they have a lot of arms and there's still probably room to trade one or two of them. And, and I think that kind of goes to the next point I want to make about Paxton is we saw with the deal they made with the Cubs with Michael Bush, their 40-man roster is packed. They don't really have an obvious drop here to make room for Paxton. Um, Hunter Vidusha is a 26-year-old catcher who doesn't really stand out to me much looking at his minor league numbers, but they did just add him to the 40-man to protect him from the Rule 5 draft. So I don't know if that means they see something or if they just wanted to have a fourth catcher on the 40-man because they have top prospect Diego Cartaya, and at the big leagues they have Will Smith and Austin Barnes. So I think he's a potential fodder here because they still haven't officially added packs into the roster they need to drop somebody for him and if they make any other further additions like a clayton kershaw type they would need to drop someone there so fiducia is an option but beyond him it's 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 interesting arms like you're saying like they're not going to drop a shehan or a grove or a stone or a frasso or a knack but then there's kyle hurt who they just acquired from the marlins um and, and he or not just acquired i suppose it was 2021 but He's an interesting enough arm for them. Like, I don't think they'd be excited to let him go or Gus Varland or Ricky Venasco. Like, there's things to like about some of these arms. They they could very easily make it into a big league bullpen and be really solid options there. So I think point A there is like they're they're gonna have to drop somebody right now. It's probably Fiducia, if I had to guess. Um and if they make any further moves, it's gonna get tougher. And then point B is if this Dodgers Kershaw reunion does happen, I bet it waits until spring training when the 60 man injured list comes back up and he can just go straight there and they don't have to worry about the 40 man constraint. So, I mean, they've already made a couple of deals to clear 40 man spots, not just the Bush trade, but you remember the uh, Jorvet Vivas, you know, trade right. trade as well. And, and um, Brian Hudson as well. Yeah. And Ryan Hudson. Yeah. So, you know, but to your point, I mean, they've tapped out, like there's not much wiggle room anymore. Right. Fiducia is a looks like he's he's on a path to being a journeyman backup catcher, so you could live without him technically. For some reason, they probably like him just because he's probably a little bit more seasoned. And if something you know happens to one of Smith or Barnes, maybe he gets up gets called up, and maybe they want to protect Cartaya because he's a top prospect, and they want to mold him a little bit more instead of putting the pressure on him so much if if he had to get called up. So I think that's why they have Fiducia on the, on the 40. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they could easily live without him, and that's kind of a luxury. Um, you know, but beyond that, yeah, I, I could see them maybe trading one of those young arms, to my earlier point. Like, maybe that sends a signal that, yeah, we've got too many of you young guys, and you can't all make it up, so one of them going to have to go. 
Um, Vanasco, I have some doubts about because he's bounced around a little bit. Um, I know he's, you know, people like his stuff and potential, but he's also had a lot of chances. So I'm not sure there's that much there there left. Um, so I don't know. It's it's going to be an interesting decision. Yeah, you're right. And, and the clock is ticking because they still haven't announced Paxton yet. So they're waiting on that move. So we're, we're going to see something happen. I heard a report somewhere that when Vanasco came back um, from injury last year, he was throwing just a ton harder. And that's part of why the Dodgers identified him and, and gave him a guaranteed 40-man spot, even despite, like you're saying, he's been a journeyman kind of bouncing around, hasn't established himself anywhere. So that's the only real reason I include him in that kind of grouping. I wouldn't be shocked to see him get cut. Like, he's obviously sooner to the chopping block than a Gavin Stone or any of those other guys. But I wonder if he's the next oh, where this random stud reliever that the Dodgers have come from. I wonder if he's on that short list, kind of. Um, but yeah, we'll have to see what, what they actually do here to make room for Paxton. I believe they'll have to add him within the coming days, so we'll see relatively shortly. Um, let's move forward. I know we're coming up on time here. Let's move forward to the hitters. Not too much of note here. Uh, the D-backs signed Doc, Jock Peterson to a one-year, $12.5 million guarantee. It has a mutual option for 2025. That's $9.5 million in salary 2024 with a $3 million buyout on that option. The model projected him at 10.9, so just a little bit under what he gets on his 12.5 guarantee. There were a lot of these kind of DH types available on the market, and the D-backs were connected to all of them, and it seemed at the end they kind of pivoted to the left-handed bat instead. So I wonder if the kind of... Uh, Jock was really the only solid lefty bat of the bunch, so I wonder if that's what kind of helped him get the extra extra little bit above what we expected. Uh, just uh, just kind of speculating there. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I mean, everybody's looking for a certain balance in the lineup, so you can, you can make that case. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it was... Yeah, pretty close enough uh, to his market value, so it doesn't phase me at all. Um, but yeah, I do think it's interesting because JD Martinez was on so many. Oh, he's going to the Diamondbacks, Diamondbacks lists of all these, you know, uh, speculative lists of where where free agents might end up. So now you start to wonder. He's still out there. Uh, Turner's still out there. Soler, Soler, Duvall. There's a bunch of right-handed guys with pop who still don't have homes yet. So where are they going? Mm-hmm. Exactly. We'll we'll probably see some movement on that market yeah. in the coming weeks. Um, another yeah. kind of in that vein, the Nationals signed Joey Gallo, again, a left-handed bat, but he gets a one-year $5 million deal to try and bounce back and make himself a trade candidate in Washington. Uh, we had him projected at $4.9 million, so right in Yay. line there. No, Yep, that, that's a, a win. Um, and then a couple other minor deals just to mention here. Cardinals brought back Matt Carpenter. It's a one-year deal on the league minimum since – Atlanta released him and, and is owing him the remainder of his contract. Um, Can I just say, it's always interesting to me when that happens because the guy could just sit on his couch. He's getting paid either whether he plays or not. There's no financial difference whatsoever. Um, so he's choosing to play. It's the same contract either way. He's getting paid. So, like, he's decided that he would rather play than retire. And and I, I sort of I, I commend that, right? He's basically valuing. There's no money difference, so he's valuing playing versus not playing as a choice. Yeah, just that. And it's not like he's a 32 year old who's trying to you yeah. know eke out a few years of his career. He's 38, and yeah. this is probably it. Like maybe he catches on on a minor league deal or something next year. But I mean, obviously, it's really fun to, turns... 
yeah, it's obviously fun to play, and he's a clubhouse kind of guy. So maybe he's thinking, okay, you know, it's sounds it sort of reminds me of like a movie plot. Like, okay, here's the old guy coming into the dugout. We're gonna have our season again, guys. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. Yep, he was the glue. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Royals sign Adam Frazier to a one-year, four and a half million dollar deal. I do not think I could care less. No offense. I, all to I will Adam say Frazier is or the Royals. All I will say is yet another example of a second baseman, average-ish second baseman, not getting paid. You know, much. It's just cold. It's always been a cold position, at least for the last few years. Yep, absolutely. And Frazier was one of those guys that actually signaled us to that way yeah, back when, right. when, when the Padres traded for him. It was like, really? That's all they gave up? We had yeah. so much higher. Yeah, well, we've learned. Yep. Um, and then the Rangers bringing back Travis Jankowski on a one-year guaranteed deal. Um, I have nothing to say here other than I, in person, watched him get multiple hits in a World Series game. And he's got the hair, game. man. He's long, flowing locks when he's running around the bases. It's always fun to watch, right? Yep, good for him, good for them. They, they, I guess just <laughs> outfield depth and not a guy they're going to be too scared to cut if Wyatt Langford really just knocks down the door. Okay, well, that's the news. Um, we do have a couple articles to discuss here. Um, probably not going to spend too much time on them, seeing as we are close on time, but these will both be linked on the show page. Um, would you like to start with the Reds or the Angels? So I'll start with the Angels. I wrote that one, um, and it's already kind of not aged well because that was before they signed Robert Stevenson and Matt Moore and like why are they going for it so my whole argument was they should rebuild you know just face reality um you know they're not going to we talked about the AL West a little bit earlier Astros still very strong you know Texas just won the World Series Seattle seems to want to go for it you know the best they can you got three contending tops at the top what are the Angels doing they just lost Otani Trout's old and broken in past his prime there's not much left on the roster so what are you doing do you really think you're going to go for a playoff spot with this roster um so i'm basically saying you know they just cut their losses and rebuild and so if they rebuilt what would be the benefit of that if they benefit if they actually did that and i and i chose um three year guys with three years of control or less so pitchers like patrick sandoval could be traded griffin canning um hitters like taylor ward luis Renjifo. Uh, all of these guys have some positive value and could be attractive on the trade market to other teams. Um, and if they did that, uh, oh, by the way, their farm is terrible. It's the worst farm in baseball, ranked 30th out of 30. In our model, we have a whole, for our premium subscribers, we have a whole team ranking section, and you can see how bad it is. If they traded all these guys, my point is, you know, on a surplus value basis, they would get a total of 136.1 million in prospect value. Now, that's on paper. Of course, reality is different. And I'm basically saying they should have traded, they should trade Mike Trout as part of that package and kick in a bunch of money, like $15 million per year, and then get back about $35 million in positive surplus value having done so. So that's a chunk. So $35 million or so in prospect value after eating some cash for Trout, $23 million-ish for Ward, $37-ish for Sandoval, $21-ish for Canning. Add all this up, and you can rebuild your farm. You could vault your farm um, from where it is today in last place to about 19th and actually put them ahead of the Rays and the Dodgers farms. That would really make a dent. If you actually went for a rebuild, your future, your future would be so much brighter than just sort of muddling through like they're doing right now. And oh, by the way, um, don't forget you've got some young guys already just made it up to the, the big leagues, Logan O'Hoffey, Nolan Shanwell, Zach Neto. 
So you can imagine forming a future core around those three guys and maybe also include Reed Detmers in there who has four years of control with a whole bunch of new prospects. And suddenly you've got some life. You've got some invigoration. And I think otherwise you're just sort of stuck. And this is the, the, this is the way out of being stuck. This is, you know, call it a day, wave the white flag for now, trade trout, rebuild, and be good in 2027. That's what I'm recommending. Now, they didn't listen to me because they went and spent $33 million in Robert Stevenson and, you know, $9 million in Matt Moore. I don't understand what the point of that is because you're basically just paping over a problem because you don't have a great team. But who am I? <laughs> They're not listening to me. Yeah, and we'll see if they sink themselves further down the hole. They've been connected to Blake Snell, so we'll see what happens there. But yeah. I think I agree. And the other thing that you can kind of add there is, you know, you might your reaction might be, wow, you tear down the team and all you get to is 19th in farm system rankings. Yeah, right. That's but how bad it is. That's, that's, yeah, that's, A, that's how bad it is and how rough their outlook is right now. And B, that's before you count draft picks. So if they're really tearing it down to the studs like this suggests, then you're going to start getting some early draft picks. I know the the lottery kind of complicates things a little bit there, but they're going to be yeah. higher draft picks than they have currently. And that's if they draft and develop properly, which should also go hand in hand with this rebuild is, hey, let's take a look at how we're doing that because it hasn't really worked all that well for us on the whole. Um, then then theoretically, you're improving the farm year after year as well. And so you're you're putting yourself in a better starting point, 19th out of 30, to really rework things and start climbing that list and then start translating that into big league value. Yeah. Um, and I think the hold up here, one more point, is owner Artie Moreno, who's known to be meddlesome. He's also known to have Dodgers envy. And he sees the Dodgers signing Otani and Yamamoto and becoming a juggernaut. And he's down the freeway from them and saying, okay, what about us? And so he doesn't want to rebuild because it would be a bad look in his mind in the LA market. It's like, okay, the angels are like, no one cares. It's all about the Dodgers. He doesn't want to suffer through that for the next two, three years if they rebuild. Should he? Yes, because three years from now, they would be the better team. The Dodgers are going all in now. I shouldn't say that because the Dodgers are a great team and well run. So maybe, but at least they would give him a chance to be on par three years from now, instead of wallowing in second class citizen status for the next, I don't know how many years they don't. Yeah. And I mean, as it is right now, Anybody who wasn't already, you know, decided on Dodgers versus Angels is already they're they're not gonna go to Angels games, they're going to Dodgers games. Especially like, after Otani, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So why not cut your losses in these years and then maybe you can bounce back when you know, if the the Dodgers ever end up on the downswing. Yeah. Um and the other thing here is you look at this list of players that they could trade. There's no real expect like okay they're they're obviously not going to trade these guys now with what we've said that they've signed Stevenson more like they're obviously at least kind of trying for 2024 but let's say things fall apart and they do finally decide to sell in the trade deadline or next off season or whatever first of all it's hard to picture how much worse things could get to force them to that point because they just went 73 and 89 with Otani that's not going to improve. That's <laughs> I have a hard time seeing them doing a whole lot better than that in the standings, and that alone didn't prompt them to rebuild. So I don't know, I don't know what it would take to to get Moreno to to flip his gears, or if it would take a sale of the team or whatever. But let's say they did change gears either at the deadline or the off season. All of these guys are decreasing in value. Like it's okay. it's hard to see an argument for any of these guys to increase their surplus, except for maybe Trout. 
you know, if Trout comes back, is back to peak Trout and stays pretty healthy for a year, then yeah, he, he will recover from where he is right now. But all these other guys, they're just running out of cheap team control. That's all that's happening here. Sandoval can only really go down. He's not going to break out as an ace. He's going to continue to be a really solid starting pitcher. He's just going to have less and less team control and it's going to get more, more and more expensive. And we'll see that surplus number tick down. Same with Canning, same with Taylor Ward, same with Renjifo, who just had kind of a breakout year and this would be the the time to sell high. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're we're just going to watch this go worse and worse because they continue to choose. And and this is on top of the choices they made at the deadline to trade their very best prospects for for a disappointing handful of starts of Lucas Giolito and relief appearances from Reynaldo Lopez. Like this... You know, you could at least defend that at the time as even if it was a long shot, this is when you push your chips in because Otani's not going to be here much longer. But at this point, they're just tripling down on on a, a busted hand. Yeah, yeah. And and, and it's no criticism against Pirimanasi and the GM. I do think it's all in Arty Moreno because I think he's he's the one calling the shots on the direction and, and Manassian has to go with it, right? He's That's his employer. Uh, you know, so, but, you know, most reasonable people would say, "What are you doing? <laughs> don't don't triple down on your bad end. Throw it in the cards. Say you're out. Rebuild. Come on, people. I know it's hard. It's Southern California. I know you're competing with the Dodgers, but take the long view." Yep, agreed. Uh, let's wrap things up here with the Reds. Then um, this is from new contributor Jimmy Costello. John, have the Reds done enough to contend? I think they have, and that's kind of the question the card, the article is posing, right? So the Rays, I mean, sorry, the Reds are a fun team. You think Ellie De La Cruz and and <clears throat> and Matt McLean and 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 a whole bunch of guys that have sort of come up and had really good starts. They've got Hunter Green on the pitching staff. Uh, Spencer Steer is another name. They've got some a good young core developed. Andrew Abbott had a really strong year. Um, so now it's basically a team of kids, right? And so the question is. Are they ready for the next step? If it was just the kids, is that enough? And the front office, and the point of this article that Jimmy made is the front office has done a good job of complementing the kids with veterans, basically. They've signed Heimer Candelario, who some people think, well, that was unnecessary because they've already got a grounded infield, but they needed a veteran bat. They, they took a shot on Frankie Montas, thinking he's healthy again and will provide some upside, you know, be the pitcher that he once was. Um... Interesting signings on Emilio Pagan and Nick Martinez for the bullpen. Maybe Martinez can start a little bit. Uh, Brent Suter is another name in the bullpen. And so basically it got to the point where like, okay, that may be enough. But there's still a couple of holes left. You might need one more veteran in the rotation. And so maybe you can trade for a Shane Bieber. And you wouldn't have to get all that much because he's making there's some injury risk there. And he's making $13 million. So wouldn't have to – wouldn't – you would you know, there's basically a couple of guys from the bottom of your farm. So that's one. Jonathan India seems to be on the outs. He's been crowded out with all from all the young guys. Bad defensive second baseman. Bad is sort of average at best. Maybe you can send him to but there's still three years of control he left and he was rookie of the year, so maybe you can tease out some upside there. But the idea here is maybe you can trade him to Boston for some prospects. And then um we included this last one. I don't think it's very likely, but the Mariners catcher Cal Raleigh would improve the catching situation. I don't think the Mariners are trading Cal Raleigh at all, but just for fun, we included that. And But they would obviously want to haul, so then you know, one trade proposal here would be you'd have to give up Rhett Lauder, Ryan Richardson, and Jorge Balcazar. So that would be a haul for Seattle, but I don't think Seattle is doing that. My point is, 
they went from just missing the playoffs with an 82 and 80 record to with the moves they've already made you could do it, you could foresee them being a playoff team if not winning the central at least being a wild card but you also have to kind of bake in improvement from the young guys you have to say okay i leave de la cruz exciting player but he also you know had some holes in his swing and so maybe he fixes those holes and maybe <clears throat> matt mclean takes a step forward and andrew abbott takes a step forward in the rotation and some of the other guys do as well so you can see it coming together and there's some ifs there and the league obviously will adjust as they go and they'll have to adjust back but there's the talent and there's the core and the front office i think has done a good job of really uh augmenting that core uh so the question is is that enough maybe we'll see yeah, especially given the context of their division. Everybody in that division has made moves this offseason, but I don't think I can look at any of them and say they've definitiv- definitively gotten a ton better. I mean, you can maybe argue that for the Cardinals, but they have the furthest to gain. Like, they, they could be significantly better and still just kind of be in the middle of the pack in that division with how they performed in 2023. So, significant question marks throughout the division. I think I'd argue the Reds have done the most to actually improve their weaknesses without losing too much at the same time. You know, the, the Cubs have improved some some points on the roster, but they don't have Cody Bellinger anymore, at least as of right now. The Brewers have improved some spots, but we just talked about how their rotation is looking with Adrian Hauser gone and, and Brandon Woodruff gone, and so that's a question mark. The Pirates are kind of treading water and doing their Pirates thing. It, it's pretty clear to me that they don't think it's it's time for them yet. And the Cardinals are making some moves, but I, I don't know if Kyle Gibson and, and Lance Lynn really cut it as far as making them like the favorites in the division. So the path is still wide open, and it usually is in the NL Central. Um, but I, I think I like the Reds' moves the most out of any of these teams as far as what it cost them in terms of uh, in terms of dollars and years to make some significant upgrades to their roster. It, it kind of hinges on Frankie Montas a lot of it, where if he looks like a even a third starter, like that's a huge get for them. But if he's kind of a mess, ends up in the bullpen, then that's pretty rough. And then there's the, the Jimer Candelario question of it all, of does this lead to another move? And we keep hearing how India isn't going anywhere, but something's got to budge. Someone's got to get traded. Mm-hmm. It's it's a similar situation, I guess not not similar to the Angels in, in in most ways, but similar in the sense that they're just gonna kind of be bleeding value if they run into the season with this real crowded infield. They're gonna have some guys who get kicked to the minors and end up kind of stalling there. They're gonna have some guys who get kicked into bench roles, and so their value maybe slips a little bit there. Like it's not gonna be good. You know, depth is good, but you also don't want too many cooks in the kitchen because then. It, it starts to negatively impact, you know, your leverage in trades as well as, as just their value in general. So Candelario, I think, is a good addition to the lineup. It's just hard to fit him in in a clean way if you're not going to also go make a move this offseason to kind of ease that logjam. So it's an interesting question of, like, what move should you make first? Like, let's say... Um, you wanted... You know, let, me, let me start up. So... Should you have traded India before you signed Candelario because you had more leverage there? Because once you sign Candelario, everyone knows he's crowded out now. And so everyone's going to lowball you because India basically lost the game of musical chairs. You basically have penciled in Noel V. Marte at third, De La Cruz at short, McLean at second, Candelario at first. 
maybe, you know, and then you've got Spencer Steer in the outfield, who's already been pushed in the outfield, and Christian Canasi on the strand, maybe he's the DH, so, like, where are you putting India? Maybe you can play him a little bit in the outfield, but everyone knows you're sort of, like, struggling to find a place for him, so you're going to get low ball offers for India, because you know he's kind of the crowded man out. Um, but should you have traded him before you signed Candelaria, in which case he might have had to overpay for Candelaria? It's always an interesting sort of chicken and egg question. Uh, but nonetheless, that's that's where we are. I do think they, they got to solve that one way. You can sort of paper over it and say, yeah, well, everybody's going to get playing time. Not everybody has established themselves yet. Somebody's going to get hurt. There's always room for another guy. Yeah, maybe that's true, but yeah, I don't know. This feels like a like a burning issue. They've got to make one move more, I think. Yeah, and if, if you are kind of decided on it's going to be India, I think it's fine to wait it out a little bit, see if anybody gets hurt on your team and you want to hang on to him or see who else gets hurt across the league in spring training and if there's a new suitor that opens up for him. Um, but if you're if you're even still kind of entertaining trading one of these other names, an Encarnacion Strand or, or somebody like that for a more notable addition, you should really have done that by now i feel like or, or should do that in, in the coming weeks before we get to spring training and, and teams start to get locked in with what they have yeah. yeah i agree well great well both of those articles will be linked below um and otherwise yeah i think that's about all i have for this week is there anything else you want to add no i just wanted to say you know uh, we'll be introducing more new writers in the coming weeks we have more interesting articles coming uh in the queue so um one area of the site we've been wanting to kind of beef up a little bit more is to have some more interesting editorial content so look for those absolutely stay tuned all right that'll do it for this week thank you all so much for listening if you have any comments or questions feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on twitter at baseball values also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode we'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates so until then stay safe and enjoy the offseason thanks john thanks josh